I was going through hell, and I knew that day I was going to drink. I just knew. And um, I had to meet with somebody, though. We had to talk about everything, and we had to share, you know, this is what I think we're going to do next, and this is how I think about the project. And it was great, and I couldn't wait for her to get out because I had to drink. I just knew I was going to relapse. This was it. I drank. I drank the whole bottle within about 10 to 15 minutes. You know, and that's the sad part of it is that for about 10 minutes, it gave me what I wanted. And within that 10 minutes, once it was over, uh, the addiction just started up again. Like that. So that is the voice of Jed A. Sober since May 14th, 2013. And a guy with relapse in his story. And he spoke a bit about it there. My name is Mike, and this is another episode of Keep Coming Back. Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. So I posted a podcast about two weeks ago to the day. And that feels like a lifetime ago. I live here in New York City, which I've talked about often, where this virus has basically shut everything down, including every recovery room. My work life in the financial markets is chaos on a daily basis. And at the end of the day, my head is spinning. And I emotionally go from a place of fear and panic to everything is going to blow over and be fine in hours. And I sort of sway back and forth in this seesaw just depending on which news channel I happen to be watching. I noticed in the recovery world, specifically the meeting room that I call my home group, there was these conflicting beliefs on, you know, on one hand, people said, hey, the rooms of AA will always be open. We were open on 9-11. We were open during the hurricanes and the blackouts, and we will always remain open. But of course, on the other hand, you had people acknowledging that staying open was doing harm, not helping. And that meeting in large groups, of course, was only causing this virus to spread more. And so I've become a daily virtual meeting attender using these Zoom videos, and I've come to really enjoy it. And as someone who likes routine in their life, this sudden change has been tough. I think it's been tough for everyone. You know, I've already been working from home for years now, but it's that life after 5 p.m. that I've been struggling with. You know, often an AA meeting is the first contact I see with real people in person all day. And so I'm dealing with how to adjust to that and seeing people in these virtual meetings, friends that I've made over the years who are now see them sitting in their living room instead of beside me in a meeting in the circle, I've found comforting and I, and it makes me feel normal. You know, it gives me a sense of normalcy in this really abnormal time. Maybe because my natural instinct is to view the glass half empty too often. My first thoughts, of course, when this all started was, look at all the things I'm losing in my life. I can't go to the gym. I can't see friends, can't date, can't go to meetings. What am I going to do? And of course, my first instinct was to go to Best Buy and buy the first Sony PlayStation I've bought in 20 years as a way I figured this will be how I pass the time. But... Just like when I got sober and I said to my first interim sponsor, it's like I have to create a whole new life, this sober one. And he said, no, you get to create a whole new life. I've decided to take that attitude and explore, you know, what can I do with this time? And so the first thing I did was I started to reach out to people over the phone on FaceTime that I hadn't spoken to in a long time. Some of them like over a year or more just to say hi and see how you're doing. And it not only made me feel good, to, it felt like some sort of act of service to check in on someone, but it has rekindled and restarted some relationships for me, which if it wasn't for all this happening, were kind of dying. 
you know, I've always said, I wish I had the time to meditate for longer, you know? Well, it's now I do. And instead of what feels to be like the obligatory five minutes of sitting just because it says I should, I've been sitting with myself for like 20 minutes a day because I can. And it's helped calm my nerves about what's happening here in New York City. You know, I worry about my work. I worry about my parents who are in their 70s. I read stories in the news about young people in their 20s and 30s dying from this. And I fear for myself. And these meditation sessions have helped to quiet those voices down. Another thing is I've gotten the opportunity to actually pick up and read these books that have been sitting on my coffee table and shelf for years. I am that person who buys books on Amazon, who buys books at the airport gift shop and then never reads them. And they sit on my table for years like little trophies. Well, now I have had the time to read these books. There's lots of positive things that are coming from this. I live above a restaurant. Now they're closed. It's finally quiet in my apartment. I could go on and on. This episode that I did with Jed was the last one I recorded before the lockdown in New York City. I don't know if I'm going to be able to convince someone to record with me in the coming weeks or if it's even appropriate for me to ask them to do it. But without giving too much away from this interview, Jed and I talk about the idea of training and how getting sober and doing the steps trains us for how to handle life when it gets tough. And now it is. I usually take the last part of the sort of opening monologue, I guess, to ask you to leave a rating or a review to help make the podcast more discoverable. But today I'm going to ask for something different, that because there is no more meetings, that because things have changed so much, my request would, would be that you could share this podcast with one person that doesn't know about it, and that maybe that would be one way that this could get out there a little bit more. Uh, and help people right now that are struggling that can't get to a meeting. And with that, here is my interview with Jed A. When I drank and when I did drugs, I always felt like I was able to feel that I could handle what was around the corner. Mm -hmm. Same. That's really what I was drinking for. Now, I liked being high. I liked being drunk. But it wore off rather quickly Mm -hmm. for me. I was really just searching for the first five minutes after the second shot. I was searching for the first 10 minutes after the second drag on a blunt. That's really what I wanted. And if I could have made that stretch out, I would have done that. Funneling beer and all that crap that that we did in college, it wasn't my thing. It was all right to do it once in a while, but I wasn't going for oblivion in the beginning but i wanted the camaraderie from the beginning right i wanted the camaraderie so yes the funneling beer with my friends sure why not we're all there together i agree with you wholeheartedly if i could have freeze the moment when i was halfway through my third drink right that was it that was it can i please freeze that Mm -hmm. but then the rest of the night is a, a ping pong match going back and forth between cocaine and alcohol, trying to stay in that sweet spot and never being able to find it. Right, exactly. I, I totally see, see that. And that's what I was always searching for. So what I was searching for was a way to control my emotions. Yeah. I was looking for the gates that I could pull down on fear. Because getting into a relationship with a man, a woman, a friendship, a romantic uh, relationship, that all... Deal, it, it, no relationship I've ever been in was ever easy. Whether it's having a best friend, whether it's having a, an, an acquaintance, whether it's having a girlfriend, anything that mattered to me was very difficult. Because why? 
because you have to put your emotions on the table. You can't control human beings. They can betray you. They can ruin your life if they want to. They can kill you in your sleep when you really think about it. So all those things, uh, you know, which I don't I guess a lot of people don't consider when getting into a relationship with someone I consider in the background. And there's always a little bit of fear there when I'm meeting someone new, when I'm going into a new uh, situation. Being high and being drunk allowed me to just put that aside. It allowed me to create this false gate that I was all right. It's kind of like, you know, when your email says delete forever, you know, it's not deleting forever. That's on a server somewhere. It's going to be there forever. It was my delete forever button. It was it was a lie, but it made me feel okay. Here's how I, here's what I, how I feel about it these days. It's yeah. like, you know, if you, like, if you see a beautiful woman, right. and you want to go approach her, let's say you saw her at a coffee shop. Right. For me, if I don't do it or didn't do it immediately, mm-hmm. then I would start to think about it. And if I started to think about it, I would psych myself out of doing it. Right. Okay. When I was a teenager, 20s, whatever, the more that I thought, the less likely I was to act. But alcohol let all that out. Yes. That's that's exactly what it did for me also. It gave me not courage. It feels like courage, but it really, what it is, it's that false gate closing out those voices. Yeah. And I love that. The problem with alcohol and the problem with drugs is I would get obliterated Mm because I couldn't control it. You know, there's only so far you can go how many shots you take always has it, you know, and because I have alcoholism, which is I have the obsession that, you know, once I take a few shots, I can't stop the, uh, that feeling only lasted so long. So my, for a long time, probably like a decade plus, it was always finding a way to, like we discussed, get that balance right. That's what I was going for. So let's talk about consequences. Right. When do you, when did those start to show up and what does it look like? Right away. It started showing up right away. First, it was small things. Pot was one of my main things mm-hmm. in the beginning. That was like my my first love, really. So pot has a lot of side effects that can really make it a drag, no pun intended. Not being able to remember where I put things. Yeah. I used to have a little song, and I used to smoke then, too. I smoked cigarettes as well. And I would tap my pockets, and I would tap my back pocket, I'd tap my front pocket, and I would sing Wallet Keys Phone Cigarettes, Wallet Keys Phone Cigarettes. And it was a really weird song I had to come up with, but I would forget things all the time. Mm. So passing tests in high school was not happening anymore, right? Um, Forgetting to call people back when I told them I would, right? Are you a daily pot smoker? At that point, yes. So we're talking high school. We're talking high school, yes. And that was also another thing. Any substance I did, alcohol, pot... It was, I did it once and I could not stop. There would be that second day where I'd be like, all right, I can control it. I'm mm-hmm. not going to do it tonight. But it knew and I knew that we were going to do it the next day. But I mean, not every substance hits you where you want it. No. There's so a, what yes. was the, like, so for me, opiates was the thing that hit the receptors that hit me and right. did exactly what I wanted it to do and gave me how I wanted to feel. For that, mm. for, for you, it was pot. Mm-hmm. If there was a story that summed up what happened, how you drank, what happened, what the consequences were, what it was like, what would that story be? Okay. Well, it's a drug story. Okay. So it's not a, it's not a drinking story. Perfect. I have two, the tale of two lives, which is there was the drug and then there was the drink. And I'll mm-hmm. get to that in a minute. 
But to sum up how I drank, and you've lived in New York for most of your life, right? Mm-hmm, I okay, have. Okay, cool. Great. So you remember Exit and Sound Factory. I do. You remember Twilo. Yep. Okay, right. So one night, I believe I was 19, and this was before fentanyl, thank God. We bought Ecstasy, and uh, I think it was what they called a... This is a throwback. You know, it's called a, a Mitsubishi. Right. All right, the pills right. had names back right. then. They, had, I think we, they still might. Yeah, they still do. What, Whatever it is. So anyway, I took, I, I bought it from a street dealer and uh, then I took it. And I, with a lot of these, some of them were very strong. You would throw up within like the first hour, you know, or the first 30 minutes. And that's how a lot of those drugs went back then. So right. I'm in exit yeah. in their bathroom. Yeah. So I want you to remember that. Okay. And I vomit. How old are you about? I'm 18. Okay. I vomit. And I'm looking down at the vomit, and in the vomit is a shiny white pill. Now, I'd really like to end this story by saying I just flushed it. Mm. That I didn't reach my hand in there, pick it up, and swallow it back down. But alas... Of course. Well, who right. wouldn't? It wouldn't. Well, I, normal people who don't have addiction issues, I think. Right. Right, right. They would not do that. So... That is really a big summary of how I drank and how I drugged. When you say that's a big summary, meaning like it had to get in? It had to get in. And what I was really trying to do was I was trying to protect myself, okay, from the feelings inside of me that I always thought were going to kill me. Which were what? It was a lot of fear. I couldn't close the gate on fear. You know when you're really excited? Let's say you're going to Six Flags. Just mm-hmm. throwing it out there. Sure. And you're going to go on that new roller coaster, but you're too excited. You don't want to kill the excitement, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're just like, okay, calm down, calm down. And you can tamper your excitement. And I think I, a lot of people, at least from what I see, have the ability to tamper their depression, to tamper their fear. They can say, okay, it's not that scary. You're just imagining it. I was never able to tamper my fear and my anxiety. I couldn't do it. I couldn't close the gate on it. But what do you think you were afraid of? Anything. Especially, well, not not, not anything. Let, let, let me rephrase that. Almost anything I couldn't directly control, you see. So in order for me to tamper the fear, what I tried to do was control all my surroundings, which didn't go well. I tried to control relationships with friends, so I'd always keep them at arm's length, mm-hmm. right? There was no free wheeling. There was no, um, you know, really deep trust yeah. So I always had, and I didn't know I was doing this when I was younger. And I keeping everybody at arm's length is work. This is just one one example. Yeah. Of it. Um, instead of taking a risk and learning something new, I would just stick with whatever I was good at already. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because if I failed or I made mistakes along the way, I never knew how to get out of the self pity that would come from that. You're a loser. Self pity. I hate myself. I'm too stupid. Other people get it. I don't. I don't know how to say, okay, okay, wait, hold on. You're learning something new, right? I don't know how to close the gate on those emotions. And this is me when I was younger. Right. I feel when you say that, I think about relationships. Right. The idea of like perhaps staying in a relationship too long because of fear of the unknown, fear of being alone, fear of what if this is as good as it gets, you know? What if I can't get a partner better than this? Right, right. And that comes from that comes from that place of, you know, I, I get what you're saying because that's how I was for a long time. Like, okay, I'm lucky to have it this good, mm-hmm. right? And I might as well just stay in this. And that comes from feeling that I am just not good enough. And no matter what I do, I will never be good enough. 
Yeah. So this is how I started life. And I do you and, remember this like even as a kid? Yeah. You, know, you yeah. do mm-hmm. ten years old. Pretty much, I was six when I first went to therapy. Really? Yes. Why did your parents get divorced? No, no. It's just there was um, growing up there was a lot of chaos, and I'm not one of those people that blames my parents for things, uh, for the way I am. But when I was younger, there was a lot of arguing. There was a lot of temp- temper tantrums, and by who you? No, by my my parents. Okay. You know, two really great people who were never taught how to regulate themselves emotionally. So that came out. And God bless their souls. My mother's still alive. My dad passed away four years ago. So they knew enough to say, all right, we need to get help. And uh, they got help. Meaning you went to family therapy. Right. And then mm. and then the therapist saw me. You know, what's alone. your family background? A, a country of origin? Oh, I'm 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 a good old American mutt. You are I'm, okay. Yeah, I'm a quarter Italian, a quarter Irish, I'm a quarter Native American, and I'm a quarter Italian, Irish, Native American, and I have a little bit of English in me too. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Queens, New York. Nice. Yeah, my name is Jedediah. <laughs> no one had ever heard of that name before, and I lived in Queens. And and it was great. And I, I liked my upbringing a lot because I liked being able to see and meet all these different people, different nationalities, different origins. So when when you went into therapy as a six-year-old, though, mm-hmm. were you like, what are we doing here? I can't remember that far back. Um, I do remember that almost anything that I went through, be it going to therapy, put on medication, um, they put all, you on medication. Yes. They, they, what? They, they Ritalin? Did. Ritalin. Uh, that's, I believe that was my first stab at uh, pharmaceuticals was yeah. Ritalin. I was diagnosed with ADHD. I just remember my stomach hurt because that's what those pills used to do back then. The side effects were pretty brutal. Stomach hurt, cramping, you know, all all. Did all you that. feel, I mean, no one is able to self-diagnose at six years old, but did you, looking back, do you think you were ADHD? I definitely had something wrong with me, or I felt that something was terribly wrong with me. That's about as much as I could really recollect on it. I mean, because it's so full. We're going back when I'm 37 now, so that's going back geez, 30 years, 30, 30, 31 years. Right. Now, um, when you talk about the, the chaos in the home, is that, right. is that accurate way to describe it? Yes. Okay, yes. so sometimes I hear stories about particularly Irish families, people talk who come from big Irish families, right. and they say, listen... What happens in this house stays in this house. Right. You don't go and talk about it. Right. Was yours like that too? Of course, yes. I think that's also, well, because we're in AA, I think that really puts, because there's so many Irish people that deal with our problem mm-hmm. that, you know, their story, we, we think that that's just, I believe we think that's just an Irish thing or like a European thing. It's pretty much almost every story I've heard from every uh, family from whatever origin, I think there was, there is always this protective measure that I've heard people speak about. And it all comes from that same vein, which is, you know, there's, in my family, it was, look, there's a lot of love in the house. It's a little crazy, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of love here, which is the way I believe they used to brush it aside. So did you have brothers and sisters? I have a younger sister. Okay. Five years younger than me. So, and she doesn't have this, thank God. 
Are you guys close? Yes. Great. I come from a long line of depressed, alcoholic, weepy whites, as I like to call them. <laughs> you know, my what gra- does that mean? My great great grandfather, quote unquote, um, fell out of a window. And, you know, the only people that fall out of windows is cats and babies. So right. he committed suicide. Yeah. You know, that's an old white pe- people term for you know killing yourself. Mm-hmm. And my father on my father's side, both of his grandparents died. No, sorry, both of his parents died of cirrhosis of the liver. When he was 17, 18. So right. he was brutalized. On my mother's side, she grew up with her mother being mentally ill and my grandfather, who was the full Native American. That's where I, that's where I get it from. He, in 1950-whatever, didn't know how to deal with that. And so he left and he went to work and he would send his kids money and he right. would send the family money. So, But I asked you about emotionally, right? Mm-hmm. You said, I felt fear. Fear of people, fear of situations. Right. Fear of situ- you know. You drank, uh huh. That that goes away. True or false? True. My voice sounded like this yeah. for a long time. Why isn't everyone doing this? What do you mean? Like going to the meetings or no? Meaning I'm taking pills. Sure, I know that this is probably not a great idea, but I'm right. thinking why isn't everyone doing this? Because this is the solution. Right, right. That's I totally agree with you. And I'm thinking people just haven't woke up to the idea that this is the cure-all. Yes. You know, <laughs> you know I, I I would look around at other people, people who had never smoked pot, or I knew that they didn't, or they would say they didn't. I would look at them and go, you poor bastard. You know, you're really missing out you're on missing life. Out, right. Oh, my God. How could – I would rather die than be you. You know, right. that's how I would think. I had tried so many different ways to just survive in the world emotionally. And nothing worked until pot. What were the other methods? Oh, you know, everything from therapy to, you know, I'd been on so many antidepressants. And then, you know, I, I, I would read a lot. I, I'm also a writer, so I like to write a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I would escape in many different ways. I'd go, I watch a ton of film. You know, I'm a big music fan. So all these things that I would try to get into from being in, you know, having lots of friendships to, uh, you know, staying at the library and reading constantly. I tried almost everything I could, but nothing quite worked so well. Mm-hmm. So at what point do you – is there something that happened that I know in your 20s mm-hmm. that made you, you know, walk into a recovery room and mean it? Yes. I was 27 years old. And the other downside to living a life of drugs and alcohol is you don't really go very far. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I was living at home still. And I was working a part-time job. And one morning I woke up. It was August the 15th, I believe, 2010. And the night before I had gotten really drunk, as I did every single night. And I used to keep a Foster's can next to the next to my bed. And I would put my cigarettes inside the Foster's can. So I would spit inside it and I would keep putting cigarettes. Spit right. inside it and keep putting cigarettes. And I was always afraid that... I was going to get really drunk and I was going to burn the bed down and I was going to burn the house down. Okay. You know, I wouldn't, I didn't want to be that guy. Right. So one night I, that the night before I must've gotten really drunk and just well forgot to put that Foster's can that has been there for eight months to the side of my bed and it spilled all over my body. Mm-hmm. So that's like about eight, nine months of cigarettes and spit. You oh can imagine. God. So it was all over me and I woke up to that and there was a, old cigarette sticking out of my belly button. I looked at that cigarette and said, you know what? I 
think it's time I give that AA thing a shot. <laughs> and, and I put, I showered, thank mm-hmm. God, and I put on a, a hoodie, and it was 100 de- degrees that day, and um, I'm sweating, and I'm shaking because I'm cold. Yeah. And I'm sitting in a room, and it was a packed room. It was a Sunday 10, 10 a.m. meeting. In Jersey. In Jersey, right. And uh, the first prayer I ever said was, God, please don't let anybody see me here that I know. I didn't, you know, I looked around, I scanned the room, everything was fine. I always joke about this because it's so funny that right. we have no problem at all None. making complete asses of ourselves, drunk, high, stoned, whatever. Right. Letting the world see it. Right. But if anyone ever saw me going into a recovery room, God help me, because that would be a shame I could not overcome. I totally understand. I've been in front of like places where they sell crack in terrible neighborhoods. I wouldn't care if anyone saw me there, but God mm-hmm. forbid I go into AA. You know, all of a sudden I'm worried, mm-hmm. but I was, yeah. and I was nervous. And then this beautiful woman stood up and she walked to the front of the room where the speaker sits. She turns around and looks at me and I knew who she was. And she says, Jedediah? She was my full name. I was like, oh no. And I knew her from my my job. She didn't work with me, but she was someone who frequented where, where I worked. Mm-hmm. She sat next to me the whole time. And she said, please, you just stay here. You'll have a life beyond your wildest dreams but you have to stay. And I'll never forget that because I was so nervous. I don't know if she didn't do that, that I would still be here. Now, granted, that wasn't the first time. No, that, that was the first time I started counting days and I got it. I got 15 days shy of two years, but I relapsed later. And uh, now I'm back. I'll have seven years in May. Now, when I always, you're actually the first person that I've talked to in these 24 episodes that has relapsed as part of their story, a significant part of their story where they had recovery. So I'm always curious because sometimes I have this fear and I've talked about it with other people that I don't think I'm going to pre-med, it it won't be premeditated. Right. That maybe I'll just be out somewhere at some point and my arm will almost spasm and grab a drink. That does happen with us. You know, that, that I would just do it. So tell me what led up to the relapse and what happened. Like, what was the drink? Tell, walk me through the whole thing. Well, my lack of faith in the world and my lack of faith in people and in myself got the better of me. And when I went into AA, I just it just stuck. I, I didn't do any steps. I did, a, I, well, actually, I went to a 12-step. It's like a 12-hour, 12 12-step 12 thing where they introduce you to it and they mm-hmm. do it how they did in 1935 or yes. whatever. They yes. do the whole thing in a day. In a whole thing in a day. Yes. So I did that. That felt good for about two two days after, but then it died. I never really had a sponsor. I had somebody who I talked to a lot. Did you do that in a me. church, by the way? Yes. It I've was heard in, about other people on Long Island doing this. I did. I, I believe it was in Amityville, Long Island. Okay. Yes. And it was a nice experience, but it didn't lead... To anything except like just feeling good for a couple of days. I felt like, okay, I got a little slice of what it must have felt like to have the steps in, in my life. But I didn't do the sponsor thing the first time. I didn't put in the work that I needed to put in, which is a big part of my story outside of drugs and alcohol, in life in general. I, I would just jump into something and I would be like, all right, I'm in it and I'll just worry about the details later. So I did, I did that with recovery and everything was fine for a little while 
you know, I was able to life got better. Life got better. I started feeling better. I went to film school. I learned how to, you know, I, I took a screenwriting class. I took a filmmaking class. You know, I, I, I had some problems happen, but nothing that ever tipped me over the edge. And I always wanted a sponsor. I always wanted to go through the steps. What stopped theory, you from picking up one? I mean, it's all over the walls. People are talking about their sponsor. I'm right. sure people approached you and asked you if you wanted, if they could be your sponsor. Right. Yes, they have. But it was just a lack of faith. I did not think that it would really work. And I didn't want to go through something and possibly fail at it. That's the big part. And feel like a loser. And this right? time in, in front of someone. In front of somebody. Yeah, in front of other people. Because I always equated failing in pain with um, just being a failure. I didn't realize that mistakes and pain are essential for growth. They're actually proof that you're growing, mm-hmm. especially if you're trying something new. So I just made it in the rooms for like a good year without having to worry about the steps. Who knows you're an AA at this point? Parents know? Parents know employers not employers no, okay. no um i always keep my aa and my employer stuff out but I, your friends I don't like know so yeah my friends know some of my friends know some do some don't mm-hmm. um the meeting i went to in jersey they were very big on not telling people that you're an aa that's a, and so i said all right you know i'm, I'm gonna stick with that so i think this is important because i'm actually working with a young guy right now who right. you know he, Writes me last night. I'm thinking about going to the bar for the first time. He's 50 days. Right. He said, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Like, you can. I think, you know, you're going to be, you're going to be confronted with alcohol at several points for the right. rest of your life. Right. Uh, just go with a plan. Go right. with a plan of what to say when mm-hmm. someone offers you that first drink. Right. right. Um, so when you start going out, mm-hmm. some people know, some people don't. Right. Uh, how does your life change in that way? Did you lose friends? Did you make new friends? When I started going out, yeah, well, being so you had running buddies, that yes. I'm sure that smoked and drank, and so did I. And right. a lot of those guys, not a lot, some of those guys are no longer my friends. The relationship just couldn't withstand mm-hmm. the sobriety, right? I, you know, I'd have been, I'd gotten so isolated toward the end, mm. both times, okay, that I cut most of my friends out before I even got to make the choice. You know, or before they even got to make a choice, I didn't, you know, I got to the point where I had a whole bunch of friends, Mm -hmm. then I had three, and then I had none. Yeah. So I, when I got sober, I just started making all, all new friends. I rekindled um, relationships with my old friends and uh, that, that worked. And um, so what happened? What led to the relapse? So I believe for anyone who's listening to this who's just flirting with AA or they're just flirting with recovery, I've tried to tell a friend of mine who's been trying to get in here for years. He would come in. He wouldn't do the steps. He'd go back out, come in, do the steps, go back out. Not that you absolutely have to do the steps in order to get sober, right? There's people who've never been to AA that have gotten sober on their own. That's right. So uh, we don't like to talk about that in the rooms, but there's a lot of people that have made it out through church. They've made it out through therapy. They've made it out through just exercise exercise yes. you know right so uh, this isn't the end all be all but in our little groups here if you are going to do something and you're going to give it a try go all the way you know do the steps and then sponsor somebody and take them through the steps see how that works mm-hmm. before you make any decisions because the booze is going to be there if it doesn't work don't worry about it. It's not like we're going to go back to the pro- prohibition days where we're going to make alcohol illegal. And if we do, you can buy it on the street. You're going right. to know where to find it. So I didn't look at the steps as training. 
I didn't think of it like it was training. And training for what? Training how to deal with my emotions in life. Because it's, life isn't that difficult. It's the emotional reactions that I have that I didn't know how to control right. that were the problem. Yes. And the steps were training for me. So the reason why I relapsed, I believe, was because I didn't have training for when life got bad. And life got, quote unquote, bad when I moved out of my house in Jersey and I moved back to New York and all the friendships, the new friendships and the old friendships I rekindled when I'd gotten sober for that little uh, span of time. You know, when you move to New York, you might as well move to, you know, Tahiti because mm -hmm. you're living and working here. You know, all my friends are gone. My old You lost group, your network. I lost my network. I lost it all. I started a new job. And I'm living in, even though it was my, you know, this is where I grew up. It was in Harlem. So it's a whole different place. Uh, everything was changing. I changed everything very quickly. There's nothing wrong with that. But I went in without training. Okay. I never, I didn't pray much. I, I didn't try to even have a, a relationship with a higher power. I didn't do my fourth or fifth step. I didn't do any ninth step stuff. And life got hard. Uh, it was very hard for me to um, be the new guy at a job that was very difficult and stressful. Sure. I didn't like the meetings in New York when I first came here. And I noticed that people I, – I noticed this in myself. Right. Then when I go to different places around the country, right. around the world, I've gone to meetings really all over the world at this point. It's really one of my favorite things to do when I travel. Yes. And the first thing I noticed that I do – unconsciously is criticize what they're doing wrong. What ah, I view as doing wrong. Yes, yes, I do that so, too. Right. So I can imagine you have this way, this routine of New Jersey meetings. You get to New York, they're doing it differently. It feels, mm -hmm. quote, wrong. Yes, and it felt cold. Yeah. It felt, it was cold and it was harsh because New York is a harsh place to live. I remember just to compare and contrast, in New Jersey, this one woman raised her hand, her house was going into foreclosure. And it was that she was the last share, you know, mm -hmm. and everyone came up to her and kind of like patted her on the back. You know, do you need a place to stay? You know, the one lady there who ran the meeting basically said, I'm going to get you a couple places where you can go. And, you know, there was about 10, 12 people surrounding her. Look, there was a guy and not in the meeting that we went to, but in a different one, he raised his hand saying he was going to get evicted. No one came up to him. <laughs> you know, right. like this is a this is a different place. Right. This is just and New York can breed that sort of callousness that you need to survive here. So I didn't like that feeling that I got from the meetings. They all felt pretty harsh. And I didn't try. Once I lose faith, I don't investigate. Right, so, so you were the guy sitting in the back, not sharing, not talking. Not talking, going, God, this is terrible. You God. know, because everyone in New York, everyone in Jersey was saying, oh, when you get to New York, those meetings are great. I'm like, I don't know what meetings they went to, but it wasn't the ones I'm going to. Mm -hmm. I mean, my first uh, meeting, the guy to share was someone who just got out of jail after being there for 10 years, and he sounded like it. Yeah. <laughs> he wasn't, like, innocent, he and didn't he went to jail. He didn't have the glow of it. No, right. no, 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 no. And a poor guy, he was, like, he was brutalized in jail, too, so he just had this very angry streak about him which I feel, I, I, I felt for him. But at that moment, I was looking for something warm and peaceful. And I got this very loud, harsh, brash introduction to life living in New, New York that maybe I wasn't ready for. Right. So I only used meetings as a tool. I'd go to meetings, I'd feel better, I would leave. I didn't use any of the steps. I didn't train. So life got really hard. And one day I decided to drink. You woke I, up in the morning. Woke up in the morning. And I went to work. 
and it was a real tough day at work. And I was sitting on the, on the train heading home and a single tear fell out of my eye. I was just, I was going through hell. And I knew that day I was going to drink. I just knew. And um, I had to meet with somebody though. Was, I'm a photographer also. So I was doing this project with a young lady who's a good guitarist for mm -hmm. a rock band. I take her pictures. We do videos. And she said, hey, I want to meet up and talk about what we're doing. And, you know, I already had a little friend there, I guess. You know, she was someone that, that we were close. And um, we had to talk about everything and we had to share, you know, this is what I think we're going to do next and this is how I think about the project. And it was great. And I couldn't wait for her to get out because I had to drink. Mm -hmm. I just knew I was going to relapse. This was it. And it's a funny thing now to look back at it. She kept saying, you sure you don't want to go out and get something to eat? You know, I'm like, no, I'm okay. Thank you so much. She goes, and I walked her to the train and she kept asking, you sure? I'm going to buy you dinner. I just wanted to thank you for everything. I go, no, 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 it's okay. Thank you so much. I'm fine. I'm You're fine. thinking like, would you just get the hell out uh, of here? Yes, yes. And I and it was right away. So what did you get? I got a bottle of Hennessy. Okay. And I went to the liquor stores a block away from where I dropped her off. I bought it. And in Harlem, there's this place right by the river there. You can just look. You can just look out, and it was a beautiful sunset. It was just pinks and oranges. It was just beautiful glow. And uh, I drank. I drank the whole bottle within about 10, 15 minutes. And um, I remember throwing it into the river. Mm -hmm. I watched it fall down. And I felt that comfort that I wanted always. You know, And that's the sad part of it is that for about 10 minutes, it gave me what I wanted. And within that 10 minutes, once it was over, uh, the addiction just started up again like that. Mm -hmm. I went back to the liquor store, bought another bottle, blacked out and woke up. And uh, I never got that comfortable feeling I got in the first 10 minutes during that 10 months I was out there. I never got it again. How long were you out there for? 10 months. How bad did it get? Well, when I did my first step with my now sponsor, the first thing he made me do was I want you to write out the top 10 worst moments and situations that drugs and alcohol put put, put you in. And um, six of them were in that 10-month span. So a lot of people say that when you relapse, you basically, you know, uh, you pick up where you left off, mm -hmm. right? That's not what happened with me. It was like there's two people. There's the alcoholic and then there's me. I put the drink down. The alcoholic is still drinking after all those years. And when I pick up, I become him. You just meet up with I him. I just meet up with him. Where he left off. And that was terrifying because I couldn't – I was able to – even though I drank every single day, I was able to pace myself. I knew when I was drinking, what I was drinking. Yeah, now sure, that seesaw would fall over a couple of times. But I always knew what I was drinking, how much, don't black out, such and such. Well, after being away from it for so long, I was blacking out. I was blacking out in New York, you know, and I was blacking out talking to homeless people in the street at 4 o'clock in the morning. So I went from being like a sober guy that fell asleep at 10 o'clock every night to being – in Harlem on 146th Street, drinking with homeless people. And that was the fourth day. <laughs> you know? So the, the, the interesting thing about that story is that, and this is all over the literature, but right. this idea and this wish 
to go back to the way things used to be when I first started drinking. So whatever right. that glory period is in your head or my head, for me, it's probably like uh, there's two. When I was 19 and 20, right. I had a great run of drinking with some and great memories. When I was 30 and I started using opiates in the beginning, great memories. Mm-hmm. And maybe it could just go back to the way that was. That was meaning uh, a couple of Percocets on, at Sunday brunch. Right. Yes. Uh, maybe it could just be uh, one uh, martini at dinner. Right. Right. And it would end there. Right. And so there's this belief that I have that if I had enough time and separated myself from that person that I was at 35 years old at the, at the end, mm-hmm. the person that was, you know, passing out from, you know, from getting, you know, basically overdosing. Right. If I separated enough space from that guy that I could go back to the way things used to be. Mm hmm. But that's just not the way it's, it's not, not the, the way, way it's it works. Be, no. And, you know, I'm, I'm not the type of guy that ever craves just like having one, one or two. Mm-hmm. What I really want when I want to go back is I want to go back to when I was able to drink and drug alcoholically with less side effects. Right. That's what I really want. I want to be able to get blitzed Friday, Saturday and Sunday, but still be able to go to work, you know, and have a normal life. Anything dramatic happened after the 10 months that got you back in or you just had had enough? One night. It was in May. I was at a bar and I wasn't a bar person. I didn't fr- frequent them much, but it was game seven and the Bulls and the uh, uh, Brooklyn Nets when Jason Kidd was still the coach okay. were playing. Yeah, they were playing a game seven. And I wanted to watch it. Now, I had isolated myself completely. The only time people saw me was when I stumbled out <laughs> in, a, in a blackout to, to get more booze or whatever. So I was around other people. And there were some women there and I chatted them up and we all were talking and having a good time. We started buying drinks. Things were good. And I got very jovial. For the first time in that 10-month span, I was having a good time. Every drink after that first one I had in Harlem where I had 10 minutes of like peace mm-hmm. was all just awful. It was all your worst drunk. That's what it felt like. Those relapse drunks were awful. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, those times where you're hungover and you drink a lot that night, but all it does is barely cure the hangover. Yes. You still have the headache. That's what they all were like. I couldn't and plus stop. you, they, that old line about a head full of AA and a belly full of booze. You know right. what you're doing. You know what you're wrong. doing, right? And it was so miserable. Oh, I, I never want to go. I pray I never get back there. So I'm at this bar. I'm watching the game. And we're having a good time. So I decided to buy a round for women. They buy a round for me, whatever. Well, there was a guy sitting all the way in the corner, and he was all alone. He, we, we, we've all seen this type, guy in the suit. He has his little glass there, and he has a cross, cro- uh, crossword puzzle, and he's not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. I said, let me go bring this guy a drink. And I get up, and I bring him a drink, and he looks at me. And the look he gave me was the type of look that you see when you go to pick out a dog at a shelter. And you're looking at all the different dogs. And every time you look at one of them and you know you're not going to pick them, they give you this look, this please get me out of here. Please, I need help. He looked at me like that. He looked at me like those dogs. Mm -hmm. But it was different. He also had a don't come near me look at the same time. And a voice came up. And I realized within a split second, I said, I am looking at the best case scenario of what can happen to me if I keep this up. We talk about jails, institutions, death, right? That's the big thing that happens to all of us. What happens if I just keep drinking every single day? 
and I avoided some of the major side effects and pitfalls of it. And I was looking at it and his eyes, I will never forget his eyes. And I backed up and I walked away and he went back to his crossword puzzle. And I said, I have to give AA another shot. I can't go on like this. That's good. That's the best case scenario of what can happen. I think that there are things that you hear in a meeting at some point along the way mm-hmm. that I'll call like a game changer. Something right. that you hear it and it just changes your perspective on things in that moment. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about one of those for you? Yes, but it wasn't in an actual meeting. That's fine. What was it? It was listening to a Joe and Charlie tape. And just to give some background for anyone that's never right. heard of this, so Joe and Charlie are these two guys that I think in like the late 80s or 90s made these sort of speaker tapes where they would go around like circuit speakers yes. and run through the steps and they tape recorded it and you can find them on Spotify. Right. Yes. And they're great. And yep. they're two old guys from the South. Yes. And they're very funny and very entertaining. And you can feel the love that they had for each other. For sure. It's great. Well, I believe it was Joe and Joe was sharing saying, look, you know, he was comparing someone who was new, who only had six months and he's always laughing, doing things for AA, having a good time, cracking jokes. And then there's the other guy who has 10 years and he's craggly and he's snarly and he doesn't really talk to anybody. And every time he raises his hand, it's always miserable. So he said, look, there's two types of time and there's time you can have. There's quality of time and there's quantity. You want quality of time. I remember listening to that going, okay, that's what I want. Quality of time. I want quality because we don't know how long we're really going to live. So how did you then, I mean, then that makes you turn the mirror on yourself and say, well, what am I doing? Yes. Okay. So how did you then shift? How did you take that information and that what he said, which is very powerful, and then say, I'm going to make a change? Well, we also don't discuss one of the good things about being an addict one of the benefits that we all have. And I discovered this for myself. I'm very quick to pick up a bad habit. But what other people struggle with, I can pick up very quickly. You know, I've been working out five, six days a week since I, I when, when I quit, I quit on May 13th, 2013. I put the, the alcohol down, I put the cigarettes down, and I joined a gym that was a block away from me all on the same day. Mm-hmm. It took about four weeks for me to get the habit to go into the gym. But just like alcohol and booze, if I really start something, it's extremely hard for me to stop. Mm -hmm. Same. So with good habits, it takes a little longer. But the same process goes. I I can't not go to the gym now without getting depressed. Well, that's that's another topic, which is where do I see my alcoholism manifest, right? Right. And I have become, at some points in my recovery, addicted to exercise. Right. That's a good addiction, I would argue. I think so, too. Here's where it gets or looks unhealthy for me. Mm -hmm. I got down to – I lost 20 pounds, and I didn't have 20 pounds to lose. Right. Okay. I wanted to get like that crazy level of body fat. Mm-hmm. I wanted to, I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't like I wanted to look a certain way. I just wanted whatever it was mm-hmm. to be better. Right. Right. At some point you have to, you're, you're there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And just acceptance of, of what it is. I started eating vegan. Mm. I quit Diet Cokes. Right. I, I remember when you did vegan, we, remember I, we went out to get lunch right. at a vegan place. Yeah. Right. 
I stopped watching any pornography. Right. The list goes on and on and on. My friends would have a running joke. What's my quitting this week? Mm. Because there's this like, I want to be better. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, it did get a little unhealthy. Right. Okay. Okay. But but you knew. So if anyone else is listening who's just flirting also with, you know, wanting to go into 12-step recovery and you feel just horrible about being an alcoholic or a drug addict, just know that this thing could be used as a superpower as well. <laughs> I agree. Because okay? of the focus that we have. Right, right. I and agree. It, it's going to be hard to train your – it's going to be hard to make the shift. And that's what we were talking about, the shift. It's hard to make the shift, okay? Mm-hmm. But not as hard as we think. When you finally did your steps. Mm-hmm. And you got to your ninth step. Yeah. And you made some amends. Mm-hmm. Was there one in particular that stood out? The one I made to my sister. Can I she hear about the, it? She was the first one I made the amends to, and it was the hardest one to make. Because okay. my sister was the one who was one of the most affected, I believe, by my drinking. Why? Well, she, I'm her older brother, and she loves me. So seeing me at home stumbling and falling down and just being a drunk – really hurt her because, well, alcoholics die. Yeah. She didn't want me to die. And I would lie to her saying I wasn't drinking or I was tired. I mean, complete lies. And sometimes I'd, drunk, I'd be drunk. I'd be begging her to drive me to Taco Bell. It was, it was horrible. So she was the first one I made the amends to, and I was terrified. Making amends is a frightening experience. It can be. But it was a wonderful experience. And Do you we, remember what you said? I said, I told her, I said, I am sorry for everything I went through. I know, sorry. I am sorry for everything I put you through. And I'm sorry for lying to you, being the drunk that I was. I apologize for sometimes stealing money out of your purse to buy booze and drugs. Mm-hmm. I went there, you know, and I was, I laid it all out and she forgave me for everything. And um, we've been closer ever since. Yeah. It's been awesome. It's been wonderful. And I'm so grateful also for the second best amends I, I made was to my father while he was still alive. And um, he passed away in 2016. So three years into my sub- sobriety, he passed away from a long battle with cancer. But I got to I got to say, which I meant, everything was very honest with both my parents. It is not your fault that I am, am an alcoholic. Did he think it was? All parents think that everything that happens to us is their fault. In Mine definitely do. Right. But it is not, and that's another thing I want to put out there for anyone who's blaming their folks or whatever. It is not our, it is not their fault. It is not your parents' fault. I don't blame my folks. My folks blame themselves. Oh, yeah. I Well, I mean, but I hear this often in the rooms. If it wasn't for my upbringing, I wouldn't be this way. That's not true because we hear so many times people with the most amazing childhoods, not as often, but people with great childhoods, they pick up a drink and then they drink too. The reason why it seem, we hear so many stories about addicts that have uh, problem childhoods is because people with problem childhoods are quicker to pick up a drink at 13 mm-hmm. because we're looking for a way out. Sure. Let me ask you this question. Going back to step work, mm-hmm. you did your fourth step, right. you did your fifth step. Right. Get to six and seven and you have to – you have a list of what the program calls character defects. Right. What are yours? Oh, uh, negative thinking. That's my number one, mm-hmm. negative thinking. Uh, pessimism would be number two, but that's really a close cousin mm-hmm. to uh, neg- negative thinking. Number three is selfishness, very selfish. Um, number four would be fear, right? Fear and, of what, though? Like, for example, for like for me, right. my fears are 
um, a fear of being alone. Right. I have a fear of losing something I have that right. you're going to take it from me mm -hmm. and fear of getting things I want that I might never get. Right. I think, you know what, you just hit the nail on the head right there. I think that's pretty much exactly what I fear also, and that's normal. Mm -hmm. I believe that that's a normal human reaction, and I think we all have that. Um, but what I have learned, because the thing for anyone who doesn't know, step six and seven is where you, you, know, you take your character defects and you do the opposite of them. Instead of fear, like we were both discussing, we turn that into faith, mm -hmm. right? Now, it's just my experience. I don't speak for anyone. Hey, I just this, this is me. I have learned that my character defects aren't really going anywhere. I haven't had any of them lifted. <laughs> you know, I haven't had any of them at all. What I do is I find a way, like with my obsession and my addiction – finding a way to turn that into something positive by going to the gym, by writing every day, by, you know, um, doing a business. Mm -hmm. I've turned this very negative situation to a positive situation. So my selfishness, what I do is I take, you know, the, uh, and well, how do I, how do I say Like, this? well, for and this is an age old argument right. amongst any newcomer, which is, okay, let's say one of your defects is your selfishness. Right. And that is mine. Right. I can make the argument to you very a, a good, compelling argument mm -hmm. that my selfishness has got me into has helped me thrive at work, right? Has helped me get the things that I have, uh -huh. and if you had my kind of selfishness, you'd be better off. You're right, I think, but it's, it's but it hurts me in other ways. It does, and this is where I always bring up the uh, I brought this up with a sponsee, the metaphor of fire. Fire is an amazing tool. Okay, it brought us out of the jungle. Okay, and if you take fire and you contain it and you're very careful with containing it, it'll warm your house, it will cook your food, it will save your life. Just one little mistake with fire, though, you'll burn down an entire forest. And this is why the steps are so important. We are training ourselves. We are training ourselves on how to not only handle our emotions, but how to take these very negative character defects that we have, contain them, and use them for good. My thanks again to Jed A for coming on the podcast today. Again, if you could leave a rating, leave a review, share this podcast with someone that might not know about it during this weird time. I'm not sure when the next episode I'm going to be able to air is because I'm not sure when I can record again with someone, but uh, you'll know about it as soon as it happens. Uh, good luck. Stay healthy, everyone out there. This has been Mike S. My show is called Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery, and I'll see you hopefully soon.